morning. Open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 in just a moment here. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Two pastors are wearing jackets this morning. It's a Christmas miracle. We didn't even talk to each other about it. This morning, we are going to talk about marriage and divorce. Last week, it was hell. This week, it's marriage and divorce. I hope there's no connection there. I want to make two preliminary comments as we approach this subject. The first comment is this. I'm not going to talk about everything the Bible has to say on this subject. I'm going to be governed mainly by this passage. We'll look at a couple other passages too. The second thing I want to say is I know there's a host of probably personal situations and scenarios kind of embodied here at Faith Church, and you've got lots of questions related to marriage and divorce. I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions as you would imagine. So we're going to kind of open up this can. It's a rather big can. There's a lot in there. My prayer, my hope is that we can get some help, some encouragement uh, from this passage and sermon this morning. Now, this topic is especially relevant because marriage in today's society is under attack. In particular, we must be aware of the pervasive cultural preoccupation with self-fulfillment. Am I getting fulfillment from this marriage? Are my so-called needs being met? He's not making me happy. I guess there's an out here. I want you to see this in Adams and Williamson. This is from their book, Divorce, How and When to Let Go. Quote, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two people to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Close quote. Really? Really? I mean, if you make self-fulfillment the guiding principle of life, you can call failure success, disintegration growth, and disaster triumph? Goodness, we are capable of immense perversity, aren't we? Is self-fulfillment the rubric by which we must evaluate marriage success and marriage transitions? As Christians, we should look to God's Word. Let me read Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Hear God's Word. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, 
He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this passage in a sentence. It's a little bit wordier than usual. Uh, bear with me. You'll see it in your notes, in your bulletin as well. So if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to open that up. Here it is. God's plan for marriage is that in its diversity, unity, and permanence, it would reflect Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. I'll say it one more time. God's plan for marriage is that in its diversity, unity, and permanence, it would reflect Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. Now, in verses 1 through 4, you can see the scene is kind of set, and the Pharisees in these opening verses are essentially laying a trap for Jesus. And in verses 5 through 12, we see Jesus essentially springing that trap. So notice in verse 1, Jesus leaves for Judea, and crowds are gathering to hear him teach. So this is nothing new in his teaching ministry. And in this section, obviously, he focuses teaching on marriage and divorce. But the context is especially intriguing. You got these Pharisees, and they're trying to notice in verse 2, they're trying to test him. Now, you have to understand, everyone in the first century, the first century kind of Jewish world, they agreed that divorce was permissible, and they drew this from Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is why both Jesus and uh, the Pharisees are referring to Moses. And in Deuteronomy 24, Moses teaches that indecency is the only grounds for divorce. But there was this kind of huge ancient debate among the Jews about what that meant. The Pharisees fell on the side of allowing and even commanding divorce for a lot of different reasons, a host of reasons. They believed you could divorce your wife if she spoiled her dinner uh, and your dinner, or if she spoke with another man on the street, or if she spoke disrespectfully to your parents. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. One wrong word to your mother-in-law, and you could be out on the street, Okay. That's kind of how it worked back in the first century in the Jewish world. So talk about walking on eggshells. It must have been terrible. And so the Pharisees were wide open on divorce. And they suspected that Jesus might be a little stricter. And they were drawing Jesus into this kind of long-standing debate because they wanted to test him and make him look bad and get him into trouble. And so there's the trap. The trap is set. How does Jesus begin to spring the trap? Look at verse 5 with me. But Jesus told them, he wrote this commandment, that's Moses. Moses wrote this commandment for you because of the hardness of your heart. So Jesus doesn't reject Moses' teaching, but he kind of recasts his teaching. People have hard hearts. And so Jesus is saying, this is why divorce is allowed. It's a concession to sin. It's not a requirement the law, Moses' law, God's law for his people, was making the best of a bad situation. 
And so just already, what can we kind of gather up about what Jesus is saying about divorce? Well, he's, he's saying essentially, don't do it. It's not God's intention for marriage. It's not what you promised before God in a room full of witnesses. The Pharisees in our 21st century world today want to consider all kinds of reasons why a couple can get divorced. They have a permission focus. Jesus has a permanence focus. And to capture Jesus' teaching on marriage from this passage, I want to give you three marks of a God-glorifying marriage. Three marks of a God-glorifying marriage. Now, if you're married, I want you to listen closely. Of course, the sermon is very much for me. I'm married. But if you're not married, I want you to listen closely too. So please don't check out. And here's why. First of all, maybe you will be someday. But there's another reason. If you're a member of this church, maybe you'll be a member of a different church down the road. If you're a member, part of your membering, part of your work as a member is to encourage marriages in the church. And so let me invite you to listen in for those reasons as well. So what is God's intention? Three marks of a godly marriage. First of all, we see beautiful diversity, beautiful diversity in marriage. Notice the first thing Jesus says is from the very beginning. This is verse 6, from the beginning of creation. So he roots his teaching on marriage and divorce in God's original intention way back in Genesis. And the first thing Jesus quotes is Genesis chapter 1. God made them male and female. I want you to think carefully about these verses. They are jam-packed with meaning, especially for today's culture. God made them male and female. So what can we say about these verses? Well, first of all, there are two genders. There are two different kinds of people. And these two different kinds of people comprise marriage. And these two people are made different as a result of God's design. God made them, notice it says. Friends, from this little quotation from Genesis, we can see something absolutely essential for us today. Gender is not a choice Gender is a gift. These gender categories are not cultural expressions or sociological phenomenon. They are designed by God and given to us to be prized and valued as a gift. And if gender is a gift, then it's something to be stewarded for God's glory, right? Not tampered with and played with to serve our own whims. And one important sphere of this kind of stewardship of our genders is marriage. Within marriage, we see this kind of beautiful diversity God has given with these two genders, male and female. Now, if you came over to my house, it's not going to be hard for you to see by simple observation. I've got two girls and two boys between the ages of three and 11. It's not going to be hard for you to see that men and women are different. They're very different. Boys and girls, from, you know, it's not like we nurture this and cultivate it. Sure, you can do that, but from the very beginning, you can tell boys and girls are different. And this isn't something to dread. It's not something to be wary of. It's something to celebrate. It's something to enjoy. It's something to cultivate. It's something to embrace and put to use because it's as God intended. Friends, our form tells us something about our function. Biology tells us something about our use. Our culture wants to minimize gender distinctions or to distort gender distinctions, but as Christians, we want to embrace them because God has given them to us. Now, how does this play out in marriage? Well, we don't have to guess. 
the Apostle Paul very kindly unpacks for us in Ephesians chapter 5 what differences look like between husbands and wives. So I want you to flip over, put, put a finger in Mark 10, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read some verses uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. What does the Bible teach about the differences between men and women within a marriage? Starting in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, he who loves his wife, excuse me, loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. So what is this saying just kind of in quick summary form? Well, it's saying two things about wives and, and husbands. First of all, it's saying that wives follow in faith their husbands, and husbands lead with love their wives. Say it again. Wives follow, or the word here is submit, submit to their husbands in faith, and husbands lead their wives with love. It's clear that what Paul teaches for a wife is different than what he's teaching for a husband. And these differences naturally play out from Genesis 1 and Mark chapter 10. God made them male and female. Husbands and wives here at Faith Church, you're not intended to be the same. You're not intended to be interchangeable. As men, as women, husbands and wives, you're intended by God to be different but complementary. Working together to glorify God, helping your kids and making disciples and doing good in your neighborhood and so forth. But what you bring to this partnership will look different. Husbands lead with love. Wives follow in faith. And this, by the way, isn't disparaging to either husbands or wives. Equality of worth doesn't necessitate equality of role. That's an important statement. I want you to think about that. Equality of worth doesn't necessitate equality of role. Let's talk about submission for just a moment. Submission is not slavish obedience or follow your husband into sin or just be a doormat or don't ever confront his sin. Absolutely not. Submission isn't mindless. I want you to consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. After praying with clarity and passion for permission to avoid the cross, what did he conclude with? Not my will, but yours. That is a picture of submission. And so attitude is key. A heart that wants to nurture and support her husband's leadership and vision. And some of that can't be kind of clearly quantified. It's, it's a posture of the heart, isn't it? Sometimes wives are more competent than men or wiser than men. If a husband has any sense, he will listen and value her thoughts and delegate wisely to her. But he bears the final responsibility. That's what headship is all about. So a godly wife will support his leadership and let him lead, even though his leadership won't be perfect. I know this flies in the face of our hyper-feminist culture right now, but... Let me just encourage you to look to God's word. 
Don't look to the world as you're thinking about what it looks like for you to live out your marital roles. Now, husbands, let's talk to you a little bit. You'll notice in the passages that I read that uh, Paul addresses a lot of his teaching to the husbands. He's, he's spilling more ink on the husbands than on the wives, right? So that, that might be, his, that might be uh, you know, something for, for us to kind of consider this morning. What does it mean to lead with love? Now, I'm not going to have time to unpack all of this passage, uh, so let me encourage you to, to read it again, ponder this again. But very quickly, according to Ephesians 5, our headship takes its cues from Jesus from his love for his bride, the church. Our leadership ought to be therefore sacrificial in nature because that's how Jesus loved his bride, right? It's not a sort of aimless sacrificial leadership either for Jesus. His aim is to present his bride as holy and radiant, being of time, right? So what does this mean for husbands here in this room? Well, as a godly husband, your primary concern is not for your wife's short-term happiness, but for her long-term holiness. Brothers, do you have this sort of vision for your bride? Our society calls masculinity currently toxic. And I wish I had time to just really push back on that, but let me just say I would push back on that strongly. It's very, very sad. There's an emasculation taking place right now in society. But if you're going to embrace your godly maleness in your marriage, then your focus, according to this passage of Ephesians chapter 5, your focus will be on your wife's increasing holiness and contentment and joy in the Lord. This is healthy masculinity. Brothers, are you primarily concerned for and, and working towards the day when she will stand before Christ? Have you led your family in such a way that service to God together and partnering in gospel ministry and growth in holiness together is at the forefront? Are you making space for her to connect and serve and influence within the body of Christ? Are these things in view? Or are you more concerned about golf or the Bengals or your career or your favorite book or nurturing your hobbies? or weekends away with the guys. Husbands and wives, let me just invite you to think about these things. Read Ephesians 5 together. Read this passage together with your spouse and ask your spouse, how am I doing? You know, where have you seen good things? Where have you seen health? Where, you, where have you seen like evidences of God's grace in my life as I'm trying to kind of enact these roles, but also where do I need to grow? Little assignment, personal assignment from me to you. If you're married, have that conversation. So there is a, a God-designed diversity that we see here, but it doesn't always work well, does it? We are sinners, and that means we bring sin into our marriages. We distort the roles God has given us to practice. But even the presence of neglect or the presence of abuse or the presence of sin doesn't mean these roles don't work. They're actually an indication that someone, maybe both parties, both sides, are not practicing the rules rightly. The answer isn't to abandon the differences. The answer is to repent of your sin. It's to repent of every way you're not following God's good design. You see, when God says, male and female, I made them, and when Paul says, hey, here's what that looks like in marriage, this is a part of God's good design. Do you remember when, when um, after God made man and woman and kind of gave them a task, this is Genesis chapter 1, do you remember what he said at the very end? He said, and it was very good. 
Before it was just good, 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 good. Now it's very good. This is very good. These distinctions are beautiful. So that's the first thing I want to point out here. One, the first mark of a godly marriage is a second mark, intimate unity, intimate unity. I want you to put your eyes on verses 7 and 8, intimate unity. Starting in verse 7, Jesus picks up now on Genesis chapter 2. This man and this woman, though different, will be brought together as one. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The marriage relationship is the deepest and most intimate of human relationships. You know, I can still remember holding each of my four kids for the first time in the hospital. Uh, an amazing bond started to form from that moment. And in the ensuing months and years, that bond only deepened. You know, I, I'm so close with my children. I'm kind of interwoven with them. I'm sure you would say the same thing about your kids, even your grandchildren. As I'm looking at my kids and, and the closeness that we experience, the reality is I'm, I'm not one with them in the same way that I am one with Jenny. And notice here, Jesus is emphasizing both the leaving, the old family, your parents, and so forth, and the cleaving coming together. Leaving your old household under your parents and making a new household with your spouse. Now, why would Moses and Jesus make this point? Because I believe God knows the massive transition that takes place when you get married. You know, some marital problems exist, especially for younger couples, because a husband or a wife has not learned to leave and cleave. Marriage creates a new family with its own integrity and culture and structures and so forth. And so when you get married, you have a new priority. You've got a new loyalty with your new spouse. Now, why is that the case? Because you are now one flesh. Listen, friends, you were never one flesh, even with your mom and dad or your brothers and sisters. You are now, if you're married, one flesh with your spouse, which indicates a sort of deep intimacy, doesn't it? But I want to dig a little deeper here. What does one flesh mean? Well, I think it's a picture of an intimate and exclusive union. If you're married, you and your spouse should share an exclusive and deep spiritual and emotional and personal and physical intimacy. It begins on your wedding day, of course, but it's meant to be kind of cultivated throughout your marriage. You know, if you don't water the plants, don't water that love fern, what's going to happen? It's going to wither and die, right? But if you nurture your union, your one flesh union through shared conversation and understanding and prayer and through partnership, a shared sense of purpose and parenting, making disciples, hospitality, if you kind of water that plant with regular date nights and fun and just kind of enjoying God's gift of life, if you kind of nurture this oneness through regular physical intimacy, even when you might not feel like it. Friends, this is when God's gift of one flesh can feel like a blessing. So husbands and wives, let me just ask you this question. Are there cracks in your one flesh union? How, how might you kind of water that plant again? How might you strengthen the bond uh, of one flesh that God has gifted you with? I wonder, are those cracks due to your sin? Entertaining lustful thoughts? You're too distracted with hobbies? 
where you're getting too friendly, you're getting too familiar with someone that is not your spouse? What might repentance look like so you can kind of refortify your one flesh union? And if there are cracks, let me invite you to bring it into the light. Share with an elder or pastor or maybe a close couple. You know, by God's grace, Jenny and I have had a good marriage over the years, but it hasn't been perfect. We've needed help at times. And I'm so glad, I know she's glad too, that we've, that the Lord has provided that sort of help. So brothers and sisters, don't keep things in the dark. What happens in the dark? Well, that's where things wither and die, right? But what happens when you bring things into the light? That's where things grow. That's where you're going to find new life and health. And so a God-glorifying marriage is marked by this sort of beautiful diversity, but, but it's one that comes together in a profound and life-giving one-flesh union, something that needs to be nurtured and cultivated throughout life. Now, here's a little assignment for small group leaders, community group leaders, okay? So uh, ask the couples in your group this week or maybe next week, ask the couples that have been together for 20 years or more, how have you nurtured your one-flesh union? What sort of guidance would you give the rest of us? Okay, so jot that question down if you're a community group leader, and let me encourage you to ask that uh, in the coming week. The third mark of a God-glorifying marriage is stunning permanence. Stunning permanence, verses 9 through 12. Okay, so, so here's where Jesus is kind of driving his whole argument. Okay, so these marks are less like individual uh, blocks and more like stair steps that kind of get us to this final point. It's kind of a culminating point here, especially in verse 9. We're going to read it in just a minute. So Jesus' main emphasis in this passage, it's not like it's kind of equally diversity and unity and then permanence kind of tacked on the end. He's driving at this idea of permanence. How do I know this? Well, Jesus basically has been giving us his own expository sermon from Genesis 1 and 2. And then here he gives us his kind of final main application. Verse 9, therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. There it is. Now, as a pastor, I've said that many a times as I've done weddings, and that is one of the most important things that I say at a wedding. In God's mind, in Jesus's mind, when marriage was created as a sacred institution, there was no thought of divorce ever. God's ideal was and is a monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage. Anything less is a departure from God's model, which means that divorce is always a tragedy, always a departure from God's ideal. All this modern talk about creative divorce and positive growth-oriented steps is a lot of pseudoscientific and therapeutic garbage that is based on secular needs theory. And this sort of thinking is like a disease that kind of creeps into churches and infects hurting Christians and gives people that shouldn't have permission, permission to even consider divorce. But friends, the Bible is clear. Christians who go ahead with an unbiblical divorce, according to the Old Testament, sin with a high hand. Even within the church, we are just too quick to talk about divorce. Often out of compassion, I understand, we are too quick to entertain this idea. We're often more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. The Pharisees, they wanted to talk about when marriage can be broken. 
Jesus wants to talk about why marriage shouldn't be broken. If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings. Whatever expectation, excuse me, whatever ex- exceptions there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. We must circle, star, and underline it. If you write in your Bibles, I want you to underline verse 9. That is the punchline, really, of the sermon. Now, having said that, we can also say that Jesus, as well as the Apostle Paul, would permit but not require divorce in certain situations. Every divorce is the product of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. I want you to see the difference here. Every divorce is the product of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. It's true that often Christians have turned a blind eye to divorce. It's kind of an ugly mark on the modern church, in my opinion. But unlike clear sins like pride or lying or slander or these kinds of things, divorce is not always wrong. The Pharisees in Jesus' day even commanded divorce in some instances. Jesus doesn't command it, but he permits it. In fact, what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 24 was the granting of a divorce certification for the woman's protection. Without that certificate, she could be taken advantage of. Friends, over and over again, we see this mantra, this, this motif in the Bible that God works to protect the innocent and the vulnerable and the violated. He wants us to work in a similar fashion, which is why there's certain rules in the Old Testament law. Now, I don't want you to get worried that your pastor's getting woke. Remember not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's something that sometimes we do. We see over and over again that God has a heart to protect the oppressed. So divorce is a kind allowance to bring relief to severe suffering. We see this heart, the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. When we look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, we're not going to turn there, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Again, we're not going to turn there. They both offer up two legitimate grounds for divorce. The first ground is adultery, and the next is desertion by a non-believing spouse. Now, in both cases, the marriage covenant is severed. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about the first ground, adultery. I don't think it means general lust, by the way, or even kind of some inappropriate computer behavior. I think it means the full act of adultery. I want to talk more about desertion by an unbelieving spouse. This is found in 1 Corinthians 7, so you can read it later. We should try to live at peace with an unbelieving spouse. According to Paul, according to Peter, we see that sort of perspective. Because who knows, right? God may save your spouse through you. And so reconciliation is still the ideal. But if that unbeliever refuses to live with you and leaves, let him do so. Let her do so. You are not bound to be married when this occurs. I want to speak about this a little bit more because there's just... Maybe in your head and mine, certainly, there's so many scenarios that kind of rattle around. I believe the Bible is clear on these two grounds. But I also think the application of the second ground, desertion by an unbeliever, the application of that can be broader than the plain or literal meaning. I want to be careful here, right? We, we don't want to open things up too much. We don't want to open up Pandora's box. And all of a sudden, you know, psychological abuse and emotional distancing and sexual neglect is also 
all of a sudden legitimate grounds for divorce. I believe it's safer to take Jesus and Paul's teaching at their word. There are only these two acceptable grounds. But, but, could I envision some extreme cases where our elders will say, okay, this guy hasn't completely disappeared from this marriage, but his life is tantamount to desertion. This guy's blowing all their money on drugs or repeatedly beating his wife or some other kind of extreme case. You know, might these kind of extreme situations verified over time be counted as desertion? I think the answer is yes. So just some thoughts there on the the two um, grounds. So we kind of transition a little bit. Let's try to summarize and kind of see where we're at here, okay? So, so we need to, as a church family, fight hard for the permanence of marriage. Even when things get hard, even when there are grounds for divorce, our impulse must be to preserve things. Don't be quick to encourage divorce. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Let's take that seriously. But I'm also very sympathetic when things have just gotten so very bad over time to allow divorce on these two grounds. Some marriages are just so destroyed by adultery or desertion, so twisted by these sins that only divorce can mitigate. Jesus' teaching is here is so strong on the permanence of marriage that he's also pretty strong on remarriage. Look at verses um, 10 through 12. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. So here's some private instruction coming up. And he said to them, Jesus, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let me just say a quick word here because, again, there's just so much to be said and so many scriptures that address remarriage. I'm not going to have time. But taking kind of the full counsel of Scripture together, this is my own view. I think Jesus is saying that anyone who divorces without legitimate grounds and then remarries someone else, that person commits adultery. If you have legitimate grounds for divorcing, in other words, you have legitimate grounds for remarrying. Does that make sense? That's what I think captures the biblical teaching. And again, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that later. Now, I know some of you in this room have been divorced. Some of you have been remarried after divorce. I know some of you have grown up within homes that have experienced divorce, so this isn't theoretical. For you, this conversation is gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. You know, the potential for evil and brokenness makes sense in light of everything we've talked about so far. Incredible diversity fused together in a one-flesh union intended for permanence, like This is a really high standard for marriage and human relationships, right? And and so when the greatest of human relationships is attacked and ravaged by sin, what do we expect but horrible things, right? So is there hope for your difficult marriage or your parents' difficult marriage? There's always hope with Christ. I don't think Pastor Dick is here, but he would certainly endorse that. There's always hope with Christ. I can tell you stories, stories of couples who confessed their sin and worked for months and years to reconcile and came together even after adultery. It's possible. 
you know, for all of us who watched rom-coms and emptied Kleenex boxes for years and years, longing for that relationship, someone, someday, marriage made in heaven. The freeing truth is that human marriage is not ultimate. Human marriage reveals something of eternal significance. I want you to flip back to Ephesians chapter 5. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 5. I just want you to see just a couple things here as we bring this to a close. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 31. Notice what the Apostle Paul quotes and then what his conclusion is. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Wow. He's quoting the same verses, but do you see his sermon conclusion in verse 32? Is he talking about human marriage there in verse 32? No, apparently he's not. What he's saying is just like the first Adam was joined to his wife and they became one flesh. So the last Adam, Jesus, joined to his bride, the church. They are now one flesh. And Paul's argument is that Christ's relationship with the church is the template after which human marital relationships are patterned, not the other way around. I wonder what you hear what I'm saying here or what Paul is saying. You know, we put so much emphasis on human marriage. It's the pinnacle of human joy, and it's the climax of human relational experience. But, but wait a second here. God had another marriage in mind back in Genesis. And friends, this other marriage is why God created the universe and gave us marriage in Eden and why couples fall in love and get married in this world today. Every time a bride and groom stand and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical story, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God, stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his wayward bride. And this marriage is also marked by diversity in unity and permanence, isn't it? The work Jesus does to win his bride is not, not a work of disintegration of ourselves, but a recovery of ourselves. We become more ourselves with Jesus, but we're still separate entities. And then Jesus unites us to himself. If you are a Christian, you are one with Christ. And this Jesus church marriage is meant to be forever, isn't it? Diversity, unity, permanence. Listen, folks, don't think Jesus and the church are the metaphor in this passage. Your marriage is the metaphor. Your marriage is the picture and the shadow. Christ and the church, this is the substance. This is the reality of all realities. Marriage isn't a human invention. It's a divine revelation. Its design was never ours to mold or discard according to our own wishes. It was given to us at the beginning of time as a brightly shining creational constant with eternal significance. None of us do marriage perfectly but we have no right to play with it or discard it and every reason to revere it. So if we struggle to understand how Christ loves us, think of an utterly devoted husband. If we struggle to understand how to please Jesus, think of a wonderfully supportive wife. If we're single or widowed, 
or divorced, I don't want you to miss where Paul directs your attention, not to a new spouse, but to the marriage of Jesus and his church. If we're married and painfully aware that our marriage is far from the ideal, we must remember that it can only be ever but a shadow of the real thing in this life. For the real thing is our union with Jesus at the most glorious wedding banquet in that far away kingdom that is slowly sneaking up on us. In other words, if you are a Christian, you will always have Christ and he is enough. There will never be a day when Christ will forsake his union with you. He will always offer his affection and goodness to you. You can always count on him. You can always trust him. And so this week, may we all be thinking about human marriage because that's what this passage is is about, right? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I, as a single person, strengthen other marriages? Yes, but far more than that, May we be thinking beyond the shadows. May we be thinking about the ultimate marriage consummated at the end of time between God's undeserving people and God's faithful son, Jesus, our bridegroom. Amen. Let's take a moment to ponder this passage.